Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fifth chapter, verses 33 through 35. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And may the Lord bless our understanding of this. May he illuminate us this morning. Let's ask him for that. Dear Lord, as we turn to these pages and we try again to grapple with the most extraordinary plan of redemption, your eschatological plan for us, what you accomplish through your son and what you have in, 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 in store for those who are called according to his purpose. Lord, we give you the glory. We start right now. We pray that we will give you glory throughout this morning because every aspect of your gospel is just an aspect that brings glory to you and no one else but you. May you be the object of our thanksgiving and praise and glory. Um, not only this morning, but for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. We ask it in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus. Amen. Throughout the Scripture, literally from one cover to the other, there's a principle that is established. Well, there's lots of principles and lots of themes, but this is one that is persistent throughout the book. And that is what I call the principle of Emmanuel. And it is the principle of God in our midst. I mean, that's the way we started in the Garden of Eden with God in the midst, walking in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. And of course, that was lost when we fell from grace or when they fell from grace. But then throughout Scripture, you see God's desire to be in the midst of his people. For instance, the whole issue of the tabernacle, when that was established, you remember as they moved around in the wilderness. The tabernacle was the place that God would come down to be in the midst of his people. And when they pitched their tents, they would pitch them around the tabernacle with all their doors facing towards the tabernacle. And that was the place in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant representing the Emmanuel principle was. And God would come down between the outstretched wings of the cherubim on that mercy seat. Well, that same concept continued and was reestablished when Solomon uh, built the temple in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem became the holy city. And the whole reason that Jerusalem was the holy city was because it was the place where the Emmanuel principle was established. That's where God was with his people in the midst of them. Now, as you know, starting with the prophets, we began to hear that God was indeed going to visit his people through his Messiah. And this all was pointing forward to the great event in human history that we just celebrated on Friday night and continue really to celebrate this morning. And that is the advent, the first advent of Christ when God became man. And of course, we know what the angel told um, Joseph. He said, behold, the virgin shall cons- the virgin." Shall Shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. John also started off his gospel in this way. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. So throughout Scripture, there's this idea and multiple images of the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. Well, the image that we have in our text right now in Luke is an image of Emmanuel. And I'm not straight, I'm, I'm gonna stretch the text. Okay, let me just go ahead and tell you that. I was asking Kay to pray for me. I didn't stretch it too far this morning. But uh, we, we are going to see an image that is a true image as far as scripture is concerned. It may not all be right here in Luke, but it is definitely the image of Emmanuel. God with us. And that is Jesus sitting in the middle of all these sinners at this feast thrown by Levi. Now, here's the way we got there. In Luke, and as you know, I'll just bring you back up to date, we are studying the good news of the kingdom of God. And we've learned, Luke has just sort of been unraveling it for us little by little as we've gone through it. For instance, we learned, first of all, that it was the core of what Jesus came to do. I must preach the, the good news of the kingdom of God, he said, for I was sent for this purpose. We know that he works great miracles, and the miracles are important. They show us the compassion of Christ, but they're not the main event. The main event is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The miracles are to authenticate both the messenger and his message. And then Luke began to tell us a little bit about what the good news actually was. In other words, through some of the um, illust- some of the healings that he did. First of all, the healing with the leper showed us that the good news was going to bring the purification, the cleansing, the righteousness that we lack would be imputed to those who were the beneficiaries of the good news. Then we saw that there was a, a healing of a paralytic when Jesus, instead of saying you're healed, he said your sins are forgiven. Now, there we began to see the correlation between sins, which is actually the disease, and illness, which were the symptoms. And it would be easier, actually, for, for, for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven because that's the reason that he came to forgive the sins so that the diseases could be um, eradicated. Well, then we saw in the story of Levi that physical illness, physical symptoms weren't the only symptoms that sometime it was just a wretched life because he was a tax collector, the low of the low. And that when Jesus healed Matthew, it was spiritual in nature and we saw a complete conversion. In fact, going back a little bit, we saw another little picture of what was going to happen when the good news was spread around a world that desperately needed it in the miraculous catch. We saw that the net, the good news gospel net, was filled with fish and more so than anyone could actually pull onto the the boat. And so we're getting a good idea of what the good news is. Last week we saw the importance of repentance when it came to the good news. Remember, Jesus 
the, the, the picture we had was of Levi, who left everything and followed Jesus. And then Jesus, of course, said to the Pharisees, who were complaining that he is feasting with Levi, that uh, I didn't come to call those of you who are self-righteous and don't need a Savior to repentance. I came to call the the sinners. And that, of course, we realize that we have seen that same sort of imagery in Peter in his reaction to the miraculous catch falling at Jesus' feet and crying out, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Or the leper falling down at Jesus' feet and begging for mercy. All of these were showing the importance, the necessity of repentance, the turning around that occurs. Now that brings us up to the feast in which we're right now. This is the place that we are. Now we've already seen part of this feast and we've noticed that there are some naysayers, Pharisees and scribes who have sort of crashed the party. We're not sure exactly how that looks, but they have found fault with Jesus and his disciples for eating with these sinners and tax collectors. And in that, we, we, we have the most extraordinary image. And this is the image that I want you to be holding in your head because we're going to expand upon it. We're going to enrich it this morning. And the picture is of Jesus reclining at table with the lowest, the worst element of humanity that could be scraped together in Capernaum. Uh, tax collectors and probably the goons that collected the taxes and uh, Gentiles and Romans and business people and probably some women who were of less than reputable status within the, communi- within the community. But that's all conjecture, of course. All we hear is that there were others, and the other Gospels tell us that they were others who were also sinners. But Jesus now is the holy. He is the righteousness, the glory of God. And he is now pictured in the midst of this group of sinners. Now, if we step back from that, we see that is the picture of Emmanuel. That is the beautiful symbol of Jesus when he came to this world. And quite frankly, brothers and sisters, the world that we live in, this is the world that John talks about when he uses the word world that means the mass of humanity that is at enmity with God and that is in open rebellion against God. I use the, the, the analogy of a sewer. And basically, that's as far as compared to heaven, that's where we live. We live in a sewer, and we're all sewer rats. And and that's kind of the picture. Now, here Jesus is, the holy, the Emmanuel, that comes in the middle of all these sinners. And we're going to to see how that is expanded a little bit um, this morning. The religious leaders of the day are not real pleased with that. So we've already heard from the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, let's continue and, and, and see what else they find fault in, starting in the 33rd verse. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, before we actually start talking about fasting, um, let's harmonize the Gospels a little bit because they approach this just a wee bit differently. 
Um, Luke here, it's as if the conversation with the Pharisees continues. We know that they in some way have crashed Levi's party or Levi's feast that he is giving that has given us this great symbol of Jesus in the midst of sinners. Well, they're on the outside somehow, and they're complaining, first of all, that they're even involved with this. But now, as far as Luke is concerned, they say, this is out of the mouth of the Pharisees, the disciples of John and our disciples fast, but your disciples don't. Well, if we go over to Matthew's gospel, Levi himself puts it kind of different when he says this. He says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So as far as Matthew is concerned, this is in the mouth of the disciples of John. They're physically there. Now, Mark gives it a third way, actually. He says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him. Doesn't tell us who those people are. And so, of course, the skeptics say, aha, we have a conflict in the Bible. Well, of course we don't. There are many explanations of how the Gospels are harmonized. In fact, this, according to those who know this kind of thing, this is actually more of a validity of the Gospels than it is that it's not true. Because different Gospel writers are going to look at the same event from different different perspectives, and they're going to relate it in the way that they see it. Plus, we don't know that all this happened on the same day. I mean, this is probably something that was continually brought up against Jesus because what we are seeing is the confrontation between two very different ideas of religion and salvation. The idea of human achievement on the one side with Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist and of divine accomplishment on the other hand, which is Jesus in the midst of sinners. Now, those two are going to conflict, and we're going to actually talk more about that next week. But there's no disharmony or discord at all between the Gospels here. Um, Basically, the important part is that... The disciples of John the Baptist are siding with the Pharisees, which is kind of crazy in and of itself, because these were sort of the recluse, you know, the ascetics, the Essenes, if you will, who moved away from Jerusalem out into the desert so that they didn't have to be around the corruption of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And now we see that they're both sort of strange bedfellows in the, in the way that they're uniting. But once again, the, the point is this. Even the disciples of John the Baptist are attaching the undue importance to the traditions, the human achievement as part of religion, and Jesus came to obliterate that, okay? So it's, 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 it's not a conflict at all that they have come and said that, um, uh, or, or that the different gospel writers say this from different perspectives. Um, what is important is the whole idea of these traditions. Now, with that said, let's kind of look at the idea that is the center of what they're saying, which is a problem with fasting. In other words, your disciples are eating and drinking. In other words, just a vision. Jesus in the midst of a rowdy crowd, reclining at table, wine and food galore, and this kind of a boisterous crowd, and the Pharisees and the disciples of John are 
with great self-piety, they are fasting, okay? Now, we need to understand a little bit about their fasting because Jesus, it's not like Jesus is breaking any of the laws of the Old Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, there is a single prescribed fast. Now, I'm not saying they don't fast in the Old Testament. I'm going to talk about that later. But in the Old Testament, in the law of God, there is a single prescribed mandated fast. And that is on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the atonement, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. High Holy Day. That is not today. This is not the kind of fasting that they are getting upset at Jesus for not doing. Because what the Pharisees and the scribes had done over time is they had begun to make fasting sort of an external uh, a, a sign of inward piety. In other words, if I'm extra religious, if I really, really am a good Jew or a good Christian, well, then I'm going to show it on the outside because I'm going to fast in this way. It was entirely external. It was not biblical, and it was not anything but their traditions. And once again, Jesus did not come to follow their traditions. Now, as I said, a little bit later on, we're going to talk about, well, what is all this in the Old Testament about fasting? And and that's going to be important. But all that said, um, you're going to think this is crazy. We're really not going to talk much about fasting today. Um, We're we're going to get later on, Um, more so next week. Because next week, we're going to talk about this confrontation between these two ideas of of religion. We're going to talk about the old wineskin and the new wine and how that doesn't fit together and what the overall plan of everything that we've been seeing in the fourth and fifth chapters of Luke kind of coming to, uh, to a head. But this morning, I want to focus on what Jesus now and the way he responds to this because he brings up an analogy that is so rich and, and, and he points us into a direction that I, I really just going to want to focus not on the fasting until later, we'll pick it up a little bit, but on the feasting because really that's where Jesus um, makes this analogy. So with that said, let's jump into that, the idea of feasting because Jesus answers in the 34th verse and Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, the way that is worded, and this is the same in all three of the synoptics, they all, it is worded in the Greek to where a positive answer is impossible. In in other words, there's no way that you could answer that question in the way that Jesus has provided, has, has said it, except to say, absolutely not. And everyone would agree. Do you remember when when Jesus uh, had said in the thirty first verse, I think, that uh, no one calls a doctor who's not sick? You know, he he told a proverb, and then after a proverb that everyone would agree on, then he showed the 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 application of that. Well, I haven't come to call you self righteous guys to repentance. I've come to call sinners. Well, he's done the same thing here. He's made a statement that is absurd. And no one would would think who's there would not agree that would be an absurdity. Now, I have to show you one thing about the language that will help make that clear, and it's kind of important, so pay attention. When, when our translators say wedding guests, 
that, in other words, that um, you, can you make the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with him? He is, he is making an analogy. He is making a metaphor, if you will, based on a Hebrew wedding. But the word is not wedding guest. In fact, that's, that's the way most English translations are. But the underlying phrase in Greek is sons of the bride chamber. Now, I know that doesn't make any sense to us. In fact, it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Um, but that, that's who he's talking about, the sons of the bride chamber. Now, I'll explain who they are in a minute, but the sons of the bride chamber had a responsibility in a Hebrew wedding. It was their responsibility to make sure that it came off as a joyous occasion, a feast, a celebration. It was supposed to be the happiest time of the young couple's life. And it was their responsibility to make sure it was that happy time. So what Jesus is saying, it would be not only absurd, it would be inappropriate and downright wrong for them to be following one of your traditional fasts when their job is to make sure that the wedding is a joyful one. And, and to really drive that home, we need to kind of understand a little bit about Hebrew weddings. And I'm not going to go too deeply into this, but let me just kind of brush up against it. In the Hebrew mindset of this time, there were three days that were the most important days in your life. The day you were born, over which you had no control, God decided that. The day you died, over which you had no control, God decided that. And the day you were married... And marriage was much more prevalent within society than it is today. And marriage for life was much more prevalent. In fact, most marriages were arranged well before they, people grew to marriage, uh, a, marriageable, a marriageable age. But therefore, because the marriage was the most important day in a couple's life that they had any control over... They just went completely overboard. Even modest or, or, or basically poor people would spend way more than they could possibly afford on extravagant wedding feast. Now, we, we had a wedding just, just Saturday. Beautiful wedding, by the way. Um, Me Too's uh, niece was uh, married uh, and, and right here in Fort Lauderdale. It was great, but the service lasted what? 20, 30 minutes at the most. And then there was a a supper afterwards, which was nice, but maybe three to four hours total in the entire worship service. That's not the way the Hebrews did it. At least a week. And and the way it would happen, and by the way, Matthew 25, the, the parable of the ten maidens is a great place to start to understand the extravagance of their wedding feast. But it would, it would last at least a week, and if they could, they would set up a tent inside the courtyard of usually the husband's father's house, the, the, and, and that's where they would have the wedding feast consummate the marriage. They didn't have honeymoons. They didn't have vacations, they had staycations, they had stay moons, all right? Um, it all happened right there in the bride chamber. Now, the guests were there for the whole week, and so they're outside partying and wishing the couple well. The couple is inside consummating the marriage, and then they come back out. And then underneath the tent, they would put up a couple of chairs, and they literally, for that whole week, would be the king and queen, and the rest of the people who were there were their subjects. It was a a hugely significant time and a time of great celebration. 
So you can see why Jesus would use this analogy. Come on now. You're asking the sons of the bride chamber, the ones who are responsible, and that's going to have meaning after we get through with this, the sons of the bride chamber, you're asking them to fast while the bridegroom is here. Now, we're in the midst of the celebration. There's going to be other times, but that's not now. It is a time of fasting and um, uh, uh, joy. Now, I told you we were going to expand our image of Jesus in the midst of the sewer, uh, in the midst of this place where um, he's surrounded by sinners. Well, now all of a sudden, the whole idea of the bridegroom and his bride are brought into that. And again, this is where I say this is, you wouldn't necessarily pick this out of Luke, but you certainly pick it out of the New Testament. It is all part of it that Jesus is the bridegroom and, and that the church is the bride. Brothers and sisters, we're the bride of Christ. Now, I know that sounds weird to a lot of people, but that's the relationship that we have with Jesus. So when we see Jesus coming down into the midst of this group of sinners and hobnobbing with them, what we are seeing is the the, the bridegroom coming in search of his bride. Now, in fairy tales, like Cinderella would be a, a good example, when a prince is looking for a bride, I thought about that when we were singing Prince of Peace earlier. When a prince is, is, is looking for a bride, well, they might have a great feast. And they would invite all the eligible maidens in, in the kingdom to come to that feast. Like Cinderella, you know, that's where she went to that feast. And hopefully the prince would be able to choose his bride out of the best of the best. But... That's not the biblical picture, folks. It is Jesus in the midst of sinners. It is Jesus in the midst of people like us. It is Jesus who comes into the sewer to find his bride and then to declare her righteous, to forgive her sins so that he can take her back to his father and present her in perfect righteousness. That's the richness of the image that we have. Now, I just want to expand on that just a wee bit because here we are in the sewer, Jesus, the holy, in the middle of all this, coming to find his bride amongst those who are in the sewer. Now, the the rats on the outside, the Pharisees and the disciples of John, they don't like it, okay, because they have their protocol. It is one that was developed in the sewer and it smells like the sewer and it comes from the king rat and if you're not the religion of God, you're the religion of Satan. So therefore, they've got their idea. They're upset at Jesus because they're, he's not following their protocol, human achievement. Jesus has come with the salvation of divine accomplishment, meaning that it is God who saves, God who takes the bride out of the sewer and exalts her and cleanses her and makes her righteous by wrapping her in his own robe of righteousness. That's the beauty of this extended um, of uh, analogy that we have here. Now, with that, you understand, everybody got the, the picture of the bride, all right? Now, let's take it and let's set it aside, okay? I, I'm going to make this as confusing as I can to you, all right? So let's just set it aside for the moment because Jesus is actually talking about something, a little nuance of difference here. 
Notice that I, I just read, and I told you I was going to do this, I read the whole analogy of the bride and the bridegroom into it because that's the, that's the analogy Jesus is referring to. But actually he's referring to here when he says that it's the sons of the bride chamber who should not be fasting. He's talking about his disciples, Levi, the perfect example. Because we as Christians, brothers and sisters, we sort of do double duty. Okay, on the one hand, we're the bride of Christ. On the one hand, just like Levi, remember, Levi was just sitting at a table. He's a a terrible sinner. Jesus says, follow me. Total conversion, complete change. He comes, he follows Jesus. Total new life in Levi. And that's the reason probably for this feast, because he's invited all of his rowdy friends so that they can experience the same uh, uh, exposure to Jesus that he experienced. But now he's a disciple now he's not just the bride of Christ caught in the gospel net. He is also a son of the bride chamber. He's also a disciple. And as a disciple, there's a nuance of relationship with the bridegroom too. So we have this amazing dual sort of situation. We are the recipients of God's glory as the bride of Christ, but we are also disciples who are called and commissioned to do something in this kingdom, in this world, in the absence of the bridegroom. So we have both of these things going on. I'm going to bring them out a little bit later on if I haven't already completely confused you. But now, let's go on and see what Jesus says next because it's significant. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. Now, when you run across phrases like that in Scripture, and this verse begins and ends with it, in those days, it's very much like there will come a time, or there will come a day, or there will come an hour, or in that hour, or in that day. All of those are eschatological in nature. Now, if you don't know that word, it just simply means eschaton, the eschatological aspect of something is how it fits into the the end times, okay? There's going, there's an end to all of this. There's a, uh, a, a, a another world, actually, an, another kingdom. The kingdom is here in one sense in the here and now. It's not here in another sense in the not yet. And so the eschaton points us forward to the end of time and how that will play out over that time. Now, I'm using the word eschatology now in a much broader sense. In fact, it is almost that I'm using it in the sense of the redemptive plan of God starting in Genesis 3.15 and ending with the passages like the one that Freddie read you earlier, ending in the glorious second coming and new Jerusalem, new kingdom that we have been promised. That's the eschatological unraveling of the kingdom of God. So we see Jesus sort of kick it up then into that sort of eschatological concept when he says there will come a day, there's going to come a time that the bridegroom will be taken away. Now that word taken away, it doesn't mean that there's going to come an end to the festivities and then the bride and groom go their way and everything is normal. It means to have that separation imposed in some way. It doesn't necessarily mean violence, but it doesn't preclude violence. And so what it hints of is that there is going to be a time before 
uh, and almost in the middle of, of this celebration when the bridegroom is going to be separated and it's going to be an imposed separation. So here's my point. This is the first hint that we get in Luke's gospel of how all of this is going to come about. I mean, how is the forgiveness of sins going to happen with a holy God who is also just? How are we going to be made righteous? We haven't heard about the cross. We haven't heard about the substitutional, sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ that would satisfy the wrath of God. We haven't heard any of that yet. So now we're just getting a hint that the bridegroom is going to be removed. He is going to be taken away from them, snatched away before the time of the festival of the feasting is over. Now, what he is pointing out here, what Jesus is pointing out is kind of what we read earlier from, uh, from Ecclesiastes, is that there's a time for feasting and there's a time for fasting. The time for feasting is now, because the bridegroom is with them. The time for fasting is not yet. But there will come a time that there will be fasting, and there will be a need for fasting in those days. So let let me just return very briefly to the idea of fasting. Again, I'm not going to really fill this out until, uh, uh, until next week. But Remember I said that there's only one prescribed, mandated fast in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean people in the Old Testament didn't fast. And it doesn't mean that people weren't fasting in the New Testament other than the external traditions of the Pharisees and the legalists. Fasting in Scripture is pretty much done for two, one of two different reasons. Either it is used as a way to grow closer to God. It it is used in conjunction with prayer to deny the physical needs of the body so that the spiritual needs will be more intensely met. There's no uh, uh, kind of piety or self-righteousness or any of that, no religiosity to be found in, in the idea of fasting. It is a way for people to grow closer to God. And it is also uh, was used at times of mourning, at, at times of great loss, uh, at times of war when the war drug on, or times of famine, or times of suffering. And, and, and it was a part of the mourning process that the Hebrews would go through. And I don't think there's any doubt that what Jesus is talking about here when he says there'll be a time for fasting is the mourning, that is, mourning, I mean, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning, um, uh, that comes with the crucifixion. When Jesus is taken away forcefully, that separation is imposed upon him as he will be taken away on the very night that he enjoyed the Passover with his disciples for the last time, gave us the upper room discourse and the high priestly prayer, goes into the garden of Gethsemane and then is snatched away in that sense, separated from his disciples. There is a mourning that is involved with that and that would cause fasting. Now, Whether or not the disciples fasted during that time, we don't know. Kind of think they probably did, but maybe not out of religious reasons. Maybe because they're just too afraid to go outside of their homes. And unless they had food in the house, they would probably have fasted in that way. But stepping back from this and recognizing 
that Jesus has sort of put this in the eschatological context, uh, I, I don't think that the crucifixion is the only fasting that they're talking about or he's talking about. So stay with me, folks, as we look at this. Because when Jesus was taken away, when the bridegroom is taken away, going back to the reality, when the bridegroom is taken away, yes, it was time to mourn. It was time to fast. But for how long? How long did that fast last? Well, by the way the Hebrews count days, only three days. By the way that we count time, a little over 36 hours. And, 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 and that was the, 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 the amount of time that was, that was brought in the fast. See, the fasting was over. Now, what we read in Ecclesiastes earlier is that there's a time for everything. There's a time for feasting and there's time for fasting. But it's not like that when a season comes, that's it for the rest of your life. You're going to have times of valleys and times of mountaintops. And there's going to be fasting and feasting that's going to last all through this. And we saw that in those last final days of Jesus. Because, yes, when he went into the tomb... For those three days, it was a time of mourning, it's a time to fast. But on Easter Sunday morning, when he walked out of that tomb, when he was resurrected, there was a time for feasting. It was a time for joy, for celebration. And what's one of the first things that they did together? They enjoyed a meal together, okay? Very much the emphasis on the fact that Jesus was eating once again with his disciples. And so fasting turns into feasting. There was a dawn. There was light at the, uh, uh, you know, the silver lining behind the cloud that was coming upon the wedding feast. But then that feast would only last so long. Because 40 days later, once again, the idea of imposed separation, not a violent separation, not going to the cross, but an imposed one because it was decided by the Trinity before the foundations of the world that Jesus would ascend back to heaven, have the glory that he had before he became uh, took on the attributes of a man, was coronated King of kings and Lord of lords, and would take his position at the right hand of God the Father, and from there he would intercede for the those that he came to save, his bride, he would intercede for them and he would rule his, country, his, his, his kingdom. But the disciples, once again, they have a time to fast. And that's kind of what they did. If you read the beginning of Acts, they're fasting and praying and, 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 and waiting for the return or, or some, the, 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 the spirit that was promised to them. Well, once again, that time of fasting only lasted 10 days. And then there was another time of feasting because the Holy Spirit came upon them as Jesus had promised the paraclete to empower them, to enable them. Once again, the Emmanuel principle is restored. God with us, this time in the hearts of the redeemed. This time's in the very heart of the bride of Christ. And so we see this this up and down, back and forth between feasting and fasting. Like I told you, I'm I'm not so interested this morning in talking about the fasting aspect of this. I know that we all go through times, and some of you might be in those times right now, just great difficulties, dark times, and, and, and you know what it's like to mourn and feel that Jesus has just kind of deserted you, you know, that you're all alone in this world. But I think that as Christians, and this is for Christians, this is not for unbelievers, 
I think as Christians, quite often, we're better at fasting than we are at feasting. You know, it's almost like we feel guilty when we're feasting. It's almost like we're looking over our shoulder to see what's going to hit us, you know, next. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, all of a sudden, I have this time where the, the Lord is with me, and, and we have this closeness, and, and, and I have a time where I can simply celebrate, and we tend to kind of put that off rather than taking the respite and learning how to feast with the bridegroom. So that's what I want to talk about in the time that I have left. Feasting with our bridegroom. Feasting with Christ. And what does that look like? Now, I told you I was going to make this as complicated as I possibly could. So let me explain that complication. Because the kingdom of God is here in one sense. The here and now. This is the world we live in. Up until the time Jesus comes back again. We live in the here and now. Okay, so in one sense, the kingdom of God is here right now. In another sense, it's not yet here. In another sense, there's going to be, as Brother Freddie read, we're going to read it again, where there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and that is feasting with the bridegroom in those circumstances. We're just going to kind of push that to the side right now, and we're going to look at nothing but the feasting with the bridegroom in the here and now. Okay, are you with me? Now, we've seen that we do double duties as Christians, Right? On the one hand, we're the bride of Christ. So we're going to feast with the bridegroom as the bride of Christ. But then on the other hand, we are the sons and daughters of the bride chamber. And we are left here in this world to carry on the work of our Lord who left us here for a purpose. And so therefore, we're going to have to learn how to feast with the bridegroom as the disciples were feasting with him in this story. So let's talk about Feasting with the bridegroom as the bride. What did you do to earn your salvation? What did you do? How did you accomplish it? What did you actually add to your salvation? Nothing. Nothing. It's all divine accomplishment. It's all the gift of God. So what do you think you should learn to do as the bride when you feast with the bridegroom. What did the bride and groom do when they got married in the Hebrew context? They celebrated. They were thankful and gave glory to God. They, they enjoyed a time of feasting. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need to learn how to do. And it's hard for us because sometimes we get our nose to the grindstone. We're looking at the water like Peter was. We're looking at the sewer and we're thinking about how terrible things are. And we forget to look up and realize we are the bride of Christ. And we feast with our bridegroom. And we're enjoying that. And like a good husband, and this is biblical, it's been lost in today's world. But in a good, in the biblical context, a good husband is caring for and watching out for not only the physical needs, but the spiritual needs, especially of his wife. He's the priest of his family. He's the shepherd of his wife. And so like a good husband, our bridegroom has cared for us. Not only did he teach us everything that we needed to know, not only did he leave us his word, not only did he send the spirit to us, but he has wrapped us in his righteousness and forgiven all of our sins and atoned for them and will resurrect us from the grave and given us promises of how we're going to spend an eternity with him. That's what our husband has done for us. 
praise God for our bridegroom. So when you have a chance to, to feast with the bridegroom, for goodness sakes, feast and enjoy it in the here and now, as you will in the not yet. But then there's, uh, there's that double duty, you see. I, I don't think that the bride, as the bride, we need to do anything but just celebrate. And come Friday night when we have our communion, I'm going to talk about this again. I'm going to talk about feasting with the king and, and, and how that's just a celebration. But let's turn our attention now to the sons and daughters of the bride chamber. Because the way I see that, that's Levi. I mean, Levi's right in the midst of these. He is a completely converted, born-again, new Christian, used to be a tax collector, now he's a fisherman. And so there's two things that I think as the sons and daughters of the bride chamber that we're supposed to do. One is to reflect the bridegroom. It's to live lives of sanctification like him. To be like him. To follow him. To be his ambassadors on this world as he leaves this world and goes. Because we know that that is an imposed separation. That he has been taken by God the Father to rule his kingdom from there. And we are left as the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And we are called to be his ambassadors. To live sanctified lives. To teach and preach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for people to be able to see that in who we are. So when we feast with the bridegroom, first of all, we need to be like him. And then secondly, we need to carry on his work. Because after all, the bridegroom came for his bride. And they're not all gathered in yet, folks. In this sewer that we live in, there's a whole bunch of people who think that they're part of the sewer that do not know that they belong to the Lord. They do not know that they are also the bride of Christ. And so we are left with a calling. Go therefore into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very ends of the world. In other words, what Jesus came to do. We continue to do. But just like he was the holy in the midst of the sewer and never condoned the sin, never participated in it, that's us. We are left as the light of the world. The city on a hill. The lighthouse shining into the darkness so that people can find their way into the wedding chamber so that they can be united with the bridegroom. That's the way that we in the here and now, brothers and sisters, feast with the bridegroom. But then there's the not yet. And you know, while we're here in the here and now, our lives are going to be a combination of feasting and fasting. As I said before, there's times that you're just going to you're just going to suffer and everything's going to seem like it's going wrong and you're going to lose sight of the one who actually has redeemed you and everything that he has planned for you. But guess what? In the not yet, there is no fasting. In the not yet, there is no sin. There is no pain. There is no suffering. There is no deformity or disability or demon possession. There is no death. 
None of that lasts. None, none of that lives up there. And so therefore, when we leave this world for that one, that's where our recompense is. That's where our treasure is. That's where our homes are. I go to prepare a place for you. Our husband told us. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Where is there? It's what we read earlier. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride? We are. That's our Lord. That's our wedding, folks. That is the wedding ceremony we have to look forward to. It was granted her, he continues, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's what I'm talking about, sanctified lives, living in the sewer but not of the sewer, living in the world but not of the world. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those. Did you realize the degree to which you are blessed? If you are a son or a daughter of the kingdom, if you are a son or a daughter of the marriage or the bridal chamber, if you are the bride of Christ. Let me just leave you with this thought because it is one of the most glorious thoughts in Scripture. And again, I'm beating this analogy to death and I realize it. You're the bride of Christ. You are the sons and daughters of the bride chamber. But you're also the wedding gift. Did you realize that? You're the wedding gift. You are the gift that God the Father gave his son before the foundations of the world were set. You are a gift that he has given for his wedding day so that you might be united with him forever and ever. And let me tell you something. When God the Father gives his son a gift... No one takes it away. So you are the gift of God. And so therefore, you have every reason. If you're not feasting now, you have every reason to look forward to the eternity that you will feast with the bridegroom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the beautiful pictures that you give us in Scripture. We know that this extravagant redemption, we don't deserve. Not a single one of us deserves this. Lord, our heart strays at times like this, or at least mine does, with pain for so many people in the world around us in this sewer of a world that we live in who don't know you who still reject you, who still are like those Pharisees and disciples of John the Baptist on the outside of all this, looking in and finding fault with your plan of redemption as beautiful and glorious as it is. They still find fault and they still say, no, you have to have human achievement. Oh, dear Lord, I pray that your spirit would flood this country and flood the hearts and souls of people and there will be a revival like this country has never felt. And I don't mean just this country. I would like to see it in the world where your spirit would turn people back to you so that they might indeed feast with the bridegroom. In whose name we pray.